The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is a sponsored podcast from our partners at Presbytery of San Jose. We hope you enjoy this special episode. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Captain Ryan Althaus, author of From Emaciated to Emancipated. Captain Ryan, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Ah, shalom, my friend. I'm super excited to join you guys. Well, we are very happy to have you. And by we, I mean me. But, you know, I want to start our conversation with an idea that you bring out at the end of your book. I'm not going to read the book backwards, but you raise this interesting issue at the end that I thought it would be really wise for us to start with. And I'm just going to quote the book to you and your own book back to you. And, and you say, we were born free of the fears and false beliefs and that were that cause our addictions. I'm just going to skip that part. But we were born free of the fears and false beliefs. And as such, our imprisonment is self-imposed. This is the key idea that I thought was so interesting. Our imprisonment is self-imposed. We make the rules. We pick the path. We can dream of a life that we want to live as we handle the responsibility to create it. So I'm wondering why, if that's true, I'm not arguing that it's true or not true, but let's just assume, let's just go with your, your notion that we're born free. Why, if we're born free, why do we choose to imprison ourselves? Oh my gosh, such a great, such a great way to start. I really like the idea of Rumi wrote a lot on the subject. And one of the things he said was, why do we stay in our tomb when the, the doorway is so wide open? I think the question really is, when did we switch over to what the world wanted us to be instead of who we truly are? I, I love that question of who were you before the world told you who to be? And gosh, the world tells us all sorts of things. So yeah, for me, it's always been this self-imposed kind of imprisonment. In the past, they've diagnosed me with OCD and, and autism and all these different things that basically come down to, I make a whole lot of rules and yeah, kind of get locked in this, this in prison of them. So to break through them, it's a process, but it's really just within ourselves. 
So I wonder if that's completely the case. And here's what I'm thinking while you're talking. I have a seven-year-old grandson, and he's in first grade. And one of the things they do, whether I like this or not, and mostly I don't, but one of the things they do is they have this point system. And at the end of the week on Friday, the kids who have earned the most points get to sit at the captain's table, in a sense, and they get they can use the points they've earned to get prizes. And the other day he came home from school and he said, you know, only the girls get to sit at the special table. And he's trying to work this out in his head, why that's the case. And, you know, I'm not guiding him one way or the other, but what he's discovering is that the rules that the teachers have set up are rules that the girls in his class find easy to follow, whereas the boys don't. And so, so in, I don't want to get sidetracked into a whole thing about gender and all this other stuff, yeah. but the rules that are being set up aren't rules that suit him. But if he wants to play the game, you know, one of the things he's discovering is, is that if he wants to win, he's got to play by the rules as opposed, and, and to do that, he's got to contort himself into the system that, in this case, his first grade teachers have set up. So that's not his doing. Now, it's his choice to follow them or not, but he's only seven. So it's not like he can stand up and say, I'm going to strike a blow for my liberty and, and stand against the system. You know, he's just a little kid. So I get what you're saying, that the imprisonment is self-imposed to an extent, but it's also imposed by society, by church, by, you know, or I shouldn't say just church, by religion, by our education system. Is there a place in our upbringing where we're not being shaped, maybe even against our own true nature? Yeah, I think, I mean, I definitely think there is. It's just hard to find that that gap sometimes when we're, when we're stuck in the midst of in, in my case, our own disorders. There was a really interesting point in, in the recovery process for me. And I recounted in the book of, I actually, I hosted a, a young man who was on parole on a sailing trip. And yeah, when he started telling me his story, he revealed like he had these beautiful dreams to, to take this boat across the ocean, to just wander, to set himself free, to but he had this ankle monitor and this ankle monitor was society's rule. He, he had to stay within a certain bounds, but at the same time I'm looking at him and I've got this open ocean. I could sail away at any given time, be completely free, but I had these self-imposed rules that restricted me. And with, with my eating disorder and, and what I was battling, like I had to, I had to be at home at a certain time to eat a certain meal, to do a certain thing. So yeah, I had this beautiful freedom. Society had no, no control over me at that point, but I was stuck. I was imprisoned. Whereas this guy with a free spirit, just ready to go, society had him bound by a simple little ankle monitor. It was, it was a really fascinating juxtaposition, but, and I think that's what we look at a lot with religion too, is I always like the, there, there's a little like placard type thing that it just says they weren't 10 suggestions, but looking at that, it's like commandment, suggestion, rules, rituals. It's all, 
well, yeah, how much of it is just us interpreting it? How much of it is, is this, this essence of truth? And that, that differs for all of us. Yeah, I want to I want to pick up the idea of religion in a second, but you just made me think of something that I thought you'd find interesting, and maybe our listeners also. A long time ago, I mean, decades and decades ago, I worked for this. this I guess it was the sheriff's department in the town I was living in, and I was responsible for um, guys who were incarcerated but on their way out, so they were no longer in separate cells. They lived in a sort of a halfway house, but still on the prison grounds. They went to work during the day, and then a prison bus picked them up from work and took them back to the prison. And when they got back, they were my responsibility. They came in, I patted them down. But we lived in this halfway house, and we cooked dinner together. And then once a week, I could take them in a van off off the prison grounds and go somewhere. And so I was really new at the job and they they wanted to go for ice cream and it was our night out. So we were going to get ice cream and I didn't know the area well. And the only ice cream place I knew was the closest one I knew was not very far. And we get in the van and we're driving and, and these are some tough characters and we're heading toward the ice cream place. And this one guy sitting next to me who had been well, we won't go into their crimes, but there were serious, serious charges that they had been convicted of. And the guy says to me, where are we going? And I told him the name of the ice cream place. And he says, you know, that's right across the state line. And as soon as we cross that line, you have no jurisdiction and we're just going to get out of the van and we're free. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all on, on a, we're all just about done with our sentences. We're all going to be legally free soon. I don't really think you want to take us across the state line and and have this massive jailbreak. It's not good for us and it probably <laughs> isn't good for you either. So I had to like slam on the brakes, make a big U-turn and go to a different ice cream place that was still within the state boundaries where they were, you know, they were being incarcerated. So you, you got to know that, you know, yeah, if, yeah, we're all free, but we have to work within the system that we're, we're dealing with. I didn't last long within the correctional system, needless to say. But let's, so let's talk about, about religion for a second, because you, you say this funny thing about it. I mean, I think religion, I mean, you're, you're a minister. I'm a no, rabbi. Uh, yeah, religion is, I, I fail to, to accept any religion I can't laugh at. That's um, the line. That's the line. You said, <laughs> that's I, exactly right. You said um, you abstain from any religion that, you cannot, you know, you say, I cannot laugh at. I love that. I have a, a whole book called Holy Rascals, which is all about the power of humor to liberate us from what you were talking about before, from these false beliefs, from these fears. When I was first studying Zen, I had a Zen master who said, you know, if meditation isn't your thing, get up in the morning and sit on the edge of your bed and start to laugh. And he said, in the beginning, the laughter will be forced, but after a few minutes, you'll actually laugh. And he said, just keep doing that until the tears start rolling down your cheeks and then go about your day. That there's something intrinsically liberating about laughter. But organized religion, I would say, has a deep-rooted fear of laughter. And what, what's your sense of that? Why, why do you abstain from any religion that cannot be laughed at? What, what are you saying there? Yeah, well, gosh, I mean, like you said, laughter is there's this this beautiful and that's 
actually why I wrote the book is because I, I wound up in a situation where I'd forgotten how to laugh. So the book is actually my quest to refine my laughter. With religion, we're so tense. We're so... We try to be politically correct. We try to say the right things. We try to not offend. I think one of my favorite religious kind of episodes, though, is have you seen the Book of Mormon? Sure. Yeah. So the Book of Mormon was a a great opportunity to just kind of fall into laughter. And yeah, I have a lot of Mormon friends that I actually went and saw that with. I took I actually took my youth group to go tour a Mormon temple and the Mormon temple or tabernacle or Oh, I'm going to mix up my words here. I'm, you can tell I'm not Mormon. But yeah, so we, we go into this tabernacle type experience and it was very, everything was white. Everything was dry. Everything was unrelatable. And right after that, I took the youth group to go see the Book of Mormon on Broadway. And as soon as that first laugh happened, the kids got it. The kids were able to just engulf themselves in this religious experience. They understood that because laughter is a universal language. And the problem with religion is we're all, we're all speaking the same thing, but in different languages. Laughter is that, that one unifying voice that, that we can all share in, but it's so hard. And that's why I liked the book of Mormon. If, if you ever go see the play, it's really funny that the best part about it is to, to look around the audience at the beginning, because everybody's trying to hold in their laughter because they don't want to be that first one. But as soon as the first one does it, it's, it's an uproar. And, uh, and yeah, they speak that universal tongue. It's it's the yeah. the true Pentecost experience, I guess. The, the the play was fun. One of the things I liked about it was the Mormon response. Now oh, I yeah. saw it. I saw it here in the Nashville area, and the Mormon response wasn't a protest. It wasn't to gather outside the theater and have placards and you know down with the show. How dare you do this? It was to set up. Um, you know, people, Mormons came and they, and they had signs and it said, you've seen the play, now read the book. And they were handing out copies of the Book of Mormon. It was, was brilliant, brilliant marketing. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was great. They embraced it. They said, yeah, we have a sense of humor. We get that what we do is odd, but here's, here's the deeper message. And I, I thought it was a brilliant way to, to respond to, to the play. Most religions, on the other hand, they... They don't have a sense of humor. They really, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Name of the Rose or read the book by Umberto Eco, The Name of the Rose. But the, the, the plot of the book, without giving anything away, or the subplot is, is about um, monks being killed in a monastery for reading a tractate treatise by Aristotle that suggests humor is okay and the the, the church is, is afraid that if the monks know that humor is okay, they'll start seeing the humor in the church and they'll laugh. And they're afraid that laughter will destroy things. I mean, I could tell you stories where I've gotten in trouble with various religions because I found them humorous, including my own, including Judaism. And there, there's a great, and I mean, you know this if you've studied for the ministry, in the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac's name in Hebrew, Yitzhak, comes from the word laughter. And you can read the whole story as a parable about 
the 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 father, the one generation trying to kill laughter. And at the last moment, God intervenes and says, no, don't kill laughter. That's, you know, that's not what religion is about. You have to free laughter. And, but, but really, the organized religions, for the most part, I guess Mormons aside, at least in this one case, the organized religions are so afraid of laughter when, in fact, laughter is liberating. You know, it, it goes back to your central, well, one of your central ideas, which I think was so powerful. When you talk about, I mean, both you and I are, are both dealing with food addictions, though, in, in different ways. But you're talking about the emptiness or the void at the center of our lives. And we're trying to, I don't know if you want to say we're trying to fill that emptiness or I don't know, you, you can you can fill and use the language you prefer. But, you know, dealing with that emptiness, you say, is the essential starting point on the path of recovery. And I'm wondering what you think of the idea that laughter, because of the physiology of laughter, because laughter, if you're really, 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 really laughing, it's a kind of kundalini breathing, you know, that, that you're really huffing, you know, like, like, cause you're, you're panting, you're laughing, your laughter is similar. That's why I think the Zen master spoke of laughter the way he did, that, that this kundalini breathing that comes with, uh, the kind of laughter we're talking about really empties out the egoic sense of self and leaves you with a positive experience of emptiness, not the negative experience of emptiness that the ego tends to have. So talk to us a little bit about, if you have any thoughts on this, about emptiness itself. I know you do because you wrote about it. And how you think humor might address uh, this, you know, confronting the emptiness as a way of getting started on the path of recovery. Yeah, well, I think emptiness emptiness kind of goes hand in hand with with isolation, with loneliness. It's when you feel empty, you feel apart. It's it's kind of the ego speaking out. It's that that idea of separation. Whereas laughter is is what happens kind of in between people. It's it's a welcoming into community. It's it's an opportunity to kind of kind of step out of yourself a little bit. So, yeah, I think laughter really opens up that door for you to start start exposing your emptiness. That's one of the biggest things is to just to just let other people into it. But uh, but yeah, it's it's also this experience like you said, it's I I like it like a laugh is a belly laugh. It's you you get that that feeling of isolation and loneliness in the pit of your stomach, but laughter is literally filling your belly. So, and, and so many of our great, as you, you mentioned, the monks in that, that comment earlier. And yeah, the monks were the ones, they were, they're the ones brewing beer. They're the ones kind of goofing off. I love actually like St. Thomas Aquinas. He has this beautiful quote. I'm going to, going to read it here real fast. It just says, Jokes and plays are words and gestures that are not instructive, but merely seek to give lively pleasure. We should enjoy them. It is against reason to be a burdensome to others, to show no amusement and act as a wet blanket. It's, it's this beautiful thing that's built into our faith from, from way, way, way back. And there's a reason you see these images of, of the Buddha laughing and it's, it's there within us. So, so let me just ask you, because I, I, I didn't follow up and I had meant to, but it slipped my mind, you know, when you say our faith. So 
and and like I said, you are a, a minister. So you said you're not going to align yourself with any religion that you can't laugh at. So, but you you consider yourself. Where are you on the religion spectrum? What what? Ah, I love that question. So I get that a lot. I actually I I work for the Unitarian Universalist Church here in Santa Cruz, but I also head up the social inclusivity efforts for the National Presbyterian Church throughout the Bay Region. So I am ordained Presbyterian, but I personally consider myself a agnostic Christian mystic. And reason being goes back to that laughter essence of none of us are right as much as we would love to think that we are. So agnostic is simply that that beautiful not knowing. Gnostic to know ag is the the negative on there. Christian, I flavor that as my that's my that's my flavor of ice cream. I always like to say religion is like an ice cream shop. I can eat my flavor next to you eating yours, but what it comes down to is it's the the sweetness of life. It's it's what adds adds life, adds sugar, adds taste. So yeah, Christianity is my flavor. We switch flavors over time and it's all right to mix and mingle a little bit and to eat next to one another. And then mystic is simply to know by feel, to just experience God or the divine, the universe, et cetera, et cetera, to experience that higher energy. So, yeah. So that, I mean, it's interesting because there's a couple, and I didn't know that about you, but there's a couple of other areas that we have in common. I, I mean, mystic to me is someone who just refuses to accept a secondhand version of God. They want a direct experience. And, and that's, I, I align myself with that as, as well. But I also have this Unitarian Universalist connection. I, I preach at churches at least once a month in, in Middle Tennessee. I, I have a little two-church two circuit that I run. So do you actually do that? Are you a, a minister with a, a church? A yeah, Unitarian? yes. So I, I preach once or twice a month down or out here in Santa Cruz. Going to jump up and get a little more intense in that. But yeah, I like to dance between denominations. I think they all have just, they have such value. They have such personality. But the the Unitarian Universalist in specific, just the, the idea that you can, you can preach a service to a row of folks that you have a Hindu, a Baptist, an atheist, etc., a Muslim, all just right there in front of you and all sharing in that that beautiful communion that that the church was really meant to be. Yeah, I I have a my sense is that the Unitarians are one of the I mean they've been around for centuries and yet so few people seem to know they exist or if they've heard the term, to have a clue what they're, they're about. And, and that's, a, that's a shame. And, you know, I don't know about you know, where, where you are, but here in Middle Tennessee, you're just, what would you call it? Sort of a, an unheralded um, you know, gem that a lot of people would, I think, benefit from if they knew it existed. Because most of the people who... Now, when they think about religion, where, again, where I live in sort of Magaland, they think about evangelical Christianity and Unitarian yeah. is really anything but. Yeah, so, so you don't have too many evangelical Unitarians. That's kind of an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that is true. Let me shift gears a little bit and, and go back to the book. 
In the book, you, you, you make a point that you don't want to overly focus on the residential side of recovery, but you had some deep experience in that. And you talk about what you call the gift of residential care. Without going into your, your whole story uh, regarding that, I think it's important that people hear that that's an option and, and why you consider it a gift. So for those who may be struggling with, with addiction, why, why is residential care something that you would suggest they consider? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Residential. I, I've used the phrase in the past residential retreat, actually. And it's something that I wish anybody and everybody could, could go through at some point because it's, it's almost returning to that, that beauty of being a child where you don't have any choices to make. You can simply focus in on what's immediate to you at the at the moment. So residential care for me was this this chance where I could get in a scenario where I couldn't hurt myself, where I didn't have to wake up thinking about what I was going to eat for breakfast, what I was if I was going to be able to eat breakfast, if I was and it just it allowed my mind to to venture into what was truly important and to to really focus in on finding who I was again without all those little, what should I do? What should I wear? What should I this, that, and the others? I was I was stuck in a gown for weeks on end. They told me when I was allowed to stand up, when I had to sit down, what I was going to eat. And when you get all those all those distractions taken away from you, all those choices taken away from you, what you're left with is just the core of who you are. And that can be a really hard thing. It's a lot of people do this with like silent retreats and so forth. Uh, but, but to be able to venture into that area of yourself and to do it alongside of others that support you on your way. Yeah. I think residential recovery and they do it for everything. I, I manage a sobriety house here in Santa Cruz and i a lot of my guys will just return to residential care periodically in order to kind of reset just because the world becomes too much. And, and at that point, you just need to, to pull back. So residential care, I see, is, is the true opportunity to rest. So I, I guess I want to underline something you said that, and, and, you know, we never know who's listening to these things. But if the way you put it, I think a lot of people hear residential care and they think, oh, now I'm going to go into the Betty Ford Clinic or, you know, yep. something like that. But when you talk about it and you, in terms of a retreat, it gives it a whole different flavor. And it, and then you talk about, you know, people who are going to go back periodically. Like, I mean, I have lots of friends who go on Buddhist, silent Buddhist retreats, maybe once a year, maybe three or four times a year. And no one says, oh, well, that's because you, your life isn't, you know, the way you want it and, and, or, you know, isn't under your control and you're not doing well and you're revert, you're, you're, you're reverting to some bad pattern. No, people go, oh, that's so great. You get to do that and you get to, you know, it's like a booster shot and you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're awakening process. Thinking of recovery the same way is really powerful. And, and I hope people are hearing that, that you can do these things without the, the stigma of, oh, he had to go back into residential care. And, uh -huh. and, and the way you defined it, now I've, I've not been in that setting, but 
it sounded to me like when I was in the military, I didn't have to think about what to wear. I, you know, I had to think about where all my little name tag went and all my insignia stuff had to be in the right place and you had to measure it with a ruler and all of that. But, you know, I wore the same thing every day. They told me when to eat. They told me what to eat. I mean, it was all programmed for me. So the only things I had to worry about were, in a sense, the, the internal things. And, and I find that's true, just the way you said it, on other kinds of spiritual retreats. And, and I think, I'm, I'm hoping people are hearing that with regard to residential recovery work, whether, whether the listener needs it herself or himself or them, themselves, that you know, maybe they know people who, who might benefit from it and can reframe it for them. Let, let me ask you one last question, because I know we're, we're really out of time. You say something in the book again, close to the end, because we started at the end, we're going to go back to the end, that I wanted to ask you about, and again, I'm going to quote you to yourself. You say, I believe wholeheartedly that the universe sends us messages to guide us along our way as we wander through this world. Whether or not we heed them is up to us, but the idea is the messages are coming. I mean, that was me. The idea the messages are coming. I'm curious how you... How do you think we notice these messages and how do we distinguish legitimate messages from, I don't know, the general static or noise or even just wishful think thinking? So let, let's end the conversation with us, giving us a sense of how we can look for and take note of the messages the universe is sending. Certainly. Well, start off, I wish I had a, a really easy answer to that. I think the best thing that has happened to me is I I took a little religious detour into Taoism. And I'm probably one of the very few Presbyterian ministers that considers himself a Taoist as well, but we'll we'll go with it. And the the Tao has this beautiful kind of mentality, whereas Western culture we, we feel as though we constantly have to push this boulder up a hill and we praise ourselves for it. It's like the one that works the hardest, the one that sweats the most, the one that, yeah, just we want to push the biggest rock up the steepest hill and we get praised for it. Whereas the Tao, it's the way. And the way is not meant to be difficult. So yeah, when the universe is giving us messages, it's it's that flow. And when you when you slip into that flow and we've all experienced it whether it's whether it's caused by yeah, you, you getting a, a good song, a good art thing. And we all have different ways to dip into this flow. And when you hit the flow, all the lights are green. The, uh, the flowers are sprouting around you. You're literally lined in a, a path of gold versus that that Western culture where you're, you're pushing against things constantly, you hit all the red lights on the way to work, you spill your coffee on your lap, you're out of the flow. So yeah, I think the best, the best way to figure out like what the universe is saying is what's the easy route. And in the Taoist tradition, it's like, if you're pushing a boulder up a hill, the best way to get back into the flow is to step aside and push the boulder down the hill and just enjoy the ride. Yeah. It's, it is, it's life. We make life a lot harder on ourselves than it needs to be very often. That is true. And maybe that's the perfect place to end the conversation. 
Our guest today, Captain Ryan Althaus, is the author of From Emaciated to Emancipated. Captain Ryan, thanks so much for being with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Yeah, and hopefully everybody chimes in so they can find me on my personal website, thesurfingmango.com. So uh, so yeah, I would love to talk more with folks. They can contact me from there and and dive into the full onslaught of books and such. So so yeah, if anybody has the, the guts to give it a go, jump on. And gosh, it was true honor to be on this podcast with you. I've been a longtime fan, so this is super exciting. Well, thank you very much. TheSurfingMango.com, right? The Surfing Mango, yep. And next time you're out in Santa Cruz, California, we've got a Unitarian Universalist pulpit waiting for you. So I would <laughs> okay, love. I'll hold you to that. Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your Apple Podcast app. If you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality and Health magazine, we wish you all a very happy new year. I know it's we're into the end of January, but still the year is young and we hope it's a meaningful and purposeful one for you. This is Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.